Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Pooler. My guest today is my dear friend Maureen Armand. And Maureen is going to talk about the Kateri Peace Conference that she's putting together. So Maureen, you guys have been doing this for quite a while, right? Yes, this is the 23rd annual Kateri Tekawitha Peace Conference. So over the past couple of years, because of COVID, it's been, you know, online. But what made you guys decide to do something like this? Well, I I actually jumped on the bandwagon uh, of an uh, of um, an effort that was begun in the late '90s by uh, John Amadon, who is uh-huh. a, a local uh, member of Veterans for Peace and a longtime peace and justice activist. Who um, in the late '90s, because of um, his traveling in Latin America and his awareness of um, the impact of things like the School of the Americas, which was um, it's now called uh, the Center for International Support. I, I'm sorry, I, that's not the exact right title, but um, the School of the Americas changed its name when it became too clear that um, more and more people were becoming aware of that at, for, at the school in Fort Benning, uh, Georgia, we were providing training for ultimately groups of Latin American um people who became informed the death squads um, that were supporting the oligarchic interests of Latin American countries and not the people and were, in fact, um, waging war on the the peasant class. Um, so uh, John became involved with that and, and traveled in Latin America and did peace pilgrimages and decided that he wanted to make the um, make uh, us more aware of, uh, of these things that our tax dollars were going to support, which were anathema to most people, he assumed, in this country if they were only aware. And he also um, decided that basically because it was the indigenous people that were suffering the greatest in Latin Amer- in the Latin American wars, um, that the indigenous uh, people in this country might be most interested in forming a base um, for education and opposition. And so um, he went to the um, Kateri Shrine in Fonda, and asked if, um, in fact, they would be interested. And the priest there at the time was very aware of the situation in Latin America and so provided that base. And so from uh, the late 90s on, the Fonda site was the um, the home site for the Kateri Peace Conference. And then uh, as uh, uh, the impulse, the, Im- the impetus to war grew, increasingly and then we moved into these forever wars post 9-11 um the the nature of the conference has you know tried to look at militarization in general in all its different aspects and we brought people um from all over the country who are uh knowledgeable and uh and uh very involved in activism confronting militarism in all its forms to speak and also hopefully have been working to build a community of people who are worried and, and interested in our foreign policy being directed towards peace and justice and, and away from what um, Dr. King called the triplicates of militarism, um, racism, and uh, capitalism, essentially. 
um, excess, excessive devotion to money and um, mm-hmm. materialism. And so um, that, that's been the kind of general framework for this conference for the 23 years that it's been happening. And I was happy beginning in uh, 19, you know, in uh, 2003 to begin to work with John on this conference. And it has seemed like a definitely a worthy enterprise um, as we continue to try to build community and concern and impetus around um, issues of, of war and peace and a foreign policy that would lead us to sustainability rather than demise. So over the years, you've had some pretty interesting speakers. Uh, can you name some of them? Uh, yes, of course. You know, Kathy Kelly and Medea Benjamin. And, you know, Medea Benjamin is well known to the public because of her work with Code Pink and um, Dr. Ro- uh, Father Roy Bourgeois. And, and but the list goes on and on. David Swanson. Um, we've had environmentalists and um, artists and uh, people who are involved with direct action and therefore who have been imprisoned for um, their work on peace and justice. We have, we've often had scholars. Um, so we've, we have run the gamut of, of uh, the kinds of citizens who are along with us, I guess, trying to understand how better to confront those um, aspects of our foreign policy and our, our attitudes um, as a nation that um, lead us to dire moments and away from uh, sustaining a sustainable future on, on every level. So this year's conference, Cynthia, is, as you pointed out, on Zoom because of COVID. We, typically, this conference is held in August. Uh, mid-August, but uh, this year we decided to push it ahead a month with the thought that that might provide more assurance that we could have an in-person conference, but we determined that, in fact, we better um, maintain um, our presence on Zoom. We are inviting people, if they feel comfortable, to come to Fonda and to be with us as we um, conduct this Zoom conference, Um, but uh, the conference will be on Zoom on Saturday, September 18th from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. We're very lucky over the last couple of years, um, David Swanson, who is an intrepid peace activist um, and always looking for ways to support um, a global conversation about how to um, confront war as a dead-ended human uh, phenomena and how to build peace, um, has created, um, and COVID, I suppose, has given an extra impetus to it, a wonderful capacity, a wonderful platform to be able to um, to offer to people all over the world who are interested in communicating about peace and justice issues. And so um, World Beyond War, um, which is at worldbeyondwar.org, um, is uh, platforming once again for us this conference and worrying about the technical aspects for us. And, and therefore also allowing us to um, to reach out to a very broad um, audience of attendees if people choose to sign on. So, again, the conference is this year on Saturday, September 18th, and um, it, uh, people need to register. Uh, the conference is free, but um, they need to register to get a Zoom, um, a Zoom access. And um, mm-hmm. they can do that by going to 
the um, conference website, which is uh, Kateri, which is KateriPeaceConference.org. That is K-A-T-E-R-I-P-E-A-C-E Conference.org, all one word. And um, what will come up is uh, the uh, homepage for this year's 23rd annual conference. And mm-hmm. um, if people um, scroll down, there will be a point that says register here. And by clicking on that, they'll be brought to the World Beyond War site, and they'll be able to register and receive um, a, a Zoom um, access for next Saturday morning. So since you've been doing this for uh, over 20 years, and, you know, technology has changed, like you and I spoke this morning, Technology has changed a lot in those 20 years. Are all of your conferences from past years videotaped so people could see them? Not all of them are videotaped, but many of them have been videotaped. And so if people go to YouTube and put in a Kateri Peace Conference, um, they can really have access to some of the talks from previous year's conferences. I mean, we. I also, uh, I also want to point out that at the KateriPeaceConference.org website, um, we have links for conferences back to two, um, 207 and uh, the articulation for those conferences, the schedule, and also um, information about all of the speakers um, are re- is readily available there. And I suppose the information about the speakers is kind of an arrow to a big conversation that I guess this conference has been, I guess you could call this conference an ongoing conversation with threads that move from year to year and um, I guess waves that move out from year to year uh, and connections that get made and networking that happens. And so I Mm -hmm. guess to enter into that conversation, um, the website is actually very helpful. I wanted to talk about the theme, if I could, um, Cynthia, for this year's conference. Um, it, we're titling it Code Red Planet, and I thought it was kind of interesting. I'll, I'll read the, um, the kind of uh, summary articulation of the framework for this year's conference, if I may. But then I'd like to yeah. talk about an article I saw in the Times Union today that pretty much reflects mm-hmm. what we're hoping to, uh, to be talking about this Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the framework for the conference, no doubt the historical moment lends itself to apocalyptic thinking and imagery. Increasingly, the pounding hoofbeats of the four horsemen sound louder and closer, more real than allegorical. Militarism, so thoroughly embraced, embedded, and normalized, permeates our consciousness, robs us of resources, devastates the climate, and threatens our future. That the doomsday clock, which is a kind of metaphorical um, way that the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has come to talk about the nuclear threat, ticking as it is, stands seconds to midnight, and that's what they determine as they look at the threats, in, uh, including most um, specifically from their point of view, the nuclear threat, marks the realistic fears coupled with catastrophic climate change, that we're almost guaranteed a pending Holocaust. The endless planetary wars and their victims' echoing cries of suffering resound even as new killing technologies are developed and embraced, which enables this untold suffering. So we move closer to, um, to terrible crisis points rather than away from them. 
clearly we are in existential crisis. What's our response? And this is the conference's response to create a new paradigm with four new horsemen who ride to affirm love, truth, life, and health. Our very survival as a species demands that we evolve. This year's Kateri Peace Conference, our speakers and the community gathered will look clearly at these present crises, yet also to the future and try to explore realistic and hopeful solutions. As always, we'll come together as a meeting bonded by empathy and love, as a community concerned with planetary well-being, cutting through obstacles and eager to find ways to move forward, flying the banners of peace, sustainability, hope, and futurity. So that's the general framework for this year's Code Red Planet Day. When I was reading the Times Union, um, there's an article on um, in uh, the A section uh, that's headlined, The UN Chief Says the World is at a Pivotal Moment. And I just wanted to, if I could, um, share a little bit of that article because it pretty much is, parallel, is a parallel reflection of what this year's September Kateri Peace Conference is coming Saturday is um, trying to look at. Uh, the article calls it a horizon-scanning report, which uh, Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez gave on Friday, and presented, he presented to the General Assembly in a news conference. He issued a dire warning that the world is moving in the wrong direction and faces, quote, a pivotal moment where continuing business as usual could lead to a breakdown of global order and a future of perpetual crisis. Changing course could signal a breakthrough to a greener and safer future, he said. The UN chief said that the world's nations and people must reverse today's dangerous trends and choose this breakthrough scenario. In other words, we really don't have much choice. The moment is imperative. The world is under, quote, enormous stress on almost every front. And the COVID-19 pandemic was a wake-up call demonstrating the failure of nations to come together and take joint decisions to help all people in the face of global life-threatening emergencies. Gutierrez said this paralysis extends far beyond COVID-19 to our failures as a species, as a planet, to tackle the climate crisis and our suicidal war on nature and the collapse of biodiversity, the unchecked inequality undermining the cohesion of societies, and technology's advances without guardrails to protect us from its unforeseen consequences. In other words, of a more chaotic and insecure world, he pointed to rising poverty, hunger, and gender inequality after decades of decline, the extreme risk to human life and the planet from nuclear war and a climate breakdown, and the inequality, discrimination, and injustice bringing people into the streets to protest, even while conspiracy theories and lies fuel deep divisions within societies. So I thought that was kind of interesting because it pretty much mirrors what our um, perspective is this year that's guided our um, invitations to speakers and the framework that we've set up for discussion throughout the day next Saturday, September 18th. Um, so um, if if uh, your listeners went to org, read through that um, framework that I just shared, they'll find click here to register um, immediately and, and they can then join into this conversation. Um, not a pleasant one. I mean, this we're talking about the fact, as uh, the Secretary General 
says that we are at a, a defining, I think, for our future as a as a planetary species moment, and so it's um, it's pretty serious business. So I um, that that's kind of the general framework. And if you if you'd like, I I could share information about some of uh, about the speakers who we've invited oh, within the context of that framework. Yes, go ahead. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, so basically, you know, we're looking specifically at the climate crisis and we're looking at the ongoing and I think sometimes backburnered, um, perhaps because it's too overwhelming um, for us to sometimes contemplate the ongoing um, threat that um, proliferation of nuclear weapons continues to hold. And those who spend a lot of time looking at um, our drive to modernize um, the nuclear arsenal and our continued insistence that we need those for our, quote, security, um, say that the greatest threat may not be that we will have nuclear war, that maybe the great powers will continue to back away in horror at what um, contemplating nuclear war would uh, would uh, involve, but that the proliferation and the um, technical issues related to um, – Cybersecurity uh, could certainly um, create this in a scenario where an accidental nuclear exchange will um, result in a holocaust for the planet, and this is continue continually a real threat. So, um, so we're going to be looking at climate change and um, and in nu- the nuclear threat, primarily uh, under the rubric, the common rubric of militarism. And um, so, uh, so we've invited speakers who can uh, address that. So uh, our keynote speaker is a woman by the name of Lindsay Kashgarian, and Lindy, mm-hmm. Lindsay is the program director for the National Priorities Project. And the National Priorities Project has been around um, for close to two decades, and basically, it's a fascinating use of uh, technology. Uh, statistical, I guess, in computer technology that allows um, the people who um, are the scholars involved with the National uh, Priorities Project to take a look spend our money on every year in terms of the U.S. budget um, as statements, in a sense, as any budget is, of our priorities as a nation and what um, that and what those priorities imply in terms of where we spend our money and therefore where we can't spend our money. In other words, the trade-offs that our priorities entail. And it becomes clear when you study the U.S. budget year after year after year that um, militarization is a priority and that the bulk of our expendable money increasingly and growing exponentially um, mm-hmm. goes to um, defense spending. And I use the word defense in quotation marks because if the last few weeks haven't uh, indicated anything, they've indicated that war is a dead end and that our, um, and what the threats of nuclear war and climate change also underscore is that we now, are in need of like great to- resources. I'd like to interject a thought r- right at this point, Maureen. Sure. You know, it, they said that the 
um, war in Afghanistan was upwards over a trillion dollars. Oh, Cynthia. Yeah. Well, if I let me let me just um, if I can just add something. Uh, there, there's a. I, I want to go back to the latest report from the national. Um, from the National Security Priorities Project, but there's also another project that you and I have talked about um, often, um, and I think you had Stephanie inter- uh, interviewed, who also is part of the Cost of War Project, which is a scholarly project that's um, housed mm-hmm. at Brown University at the Watson Institute, and they mm-hmm. just did a, a web uh, a webinar where they said that the cost of the uh, the last 20 years war the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan if you calculate the fact that those wars have been put on a credit card and that we have not paid for them and that we will be paying interest on them because they've been waged on borrowed mm-hmm. dollars and if you uh, calculate as you must the continual cost that will go on now for decades of uh, caring for wounded veterans and their benefits um, painfully earned, um, the cost of the last 20 years' incursions in Iraq and Afghanistan is at least $8 trillion, $8 trillion. And this is a scholarly analysis, and they're very clear on how they – they arrive at those figures. So that's $8 trillion. Um, as I said, Lin- Lindsay Kushgarin is going to be our um, our keynote speaker, and she's going to address the cost of militarism. And uh, um, just to go back to what you said about $1 trillion, which is, it turns out, a drop in the bucket, um, the, cost, the National Priorities Project has just issued on September 1st a, uh, a new uh, paper, uh, I suppose you could call it a white paper, called the state of insecurity, the cost of militarization since 9-11. And that if, if it's okay, just in response to your question about the $1 trillion, let me just read what they had to say. 20 years after 9-11, the war on terror has remade the U.S. into a far more militarized actor, both around the world and at home. The human costs of this evolution are many, including mass incarceration, widespread surveillance, the violent repression of immigrant communities, and hundreds of thousands of lives lost to war and violence. But, of course, and and that's not to minimize that at all, because that sits alone um, as something to contemplate and, um, and take in and react to and worry over and uh, sense the imperative of avoiding that kind of human cost in the future, but of course, this militarization, militarization also has financial costs too. Over the last 20 years, the U.S. has spent more than 21 trillion dollars on no. mili- uh. militarization, surveillance, and repression. And I think they include surveillance and repression under a very broad rubric of militarization. In other words, um, we make enemies of our fears, I guess, and we choose that mm-hmm. as our mo- mode of operating instead of diplomacy and um, 
and all of those things that we could have in our toolbox, reconciliation, all those things that would help us um, come to a more sustainable approach to our conflicts in the world. Um, so anyway, the U.S. has spent more than $21 trillion on militarization, all in the name of security. These investments have shown us that the U.S. has the capacity and political will to invest in our biggest priorities. But the COVID-19 pandemic, the January 6th insurrection, wildfires raging in the West, the fall of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. they've shown us that these investments cannot buy us security safety, and therefore the state of insecurity that we live in. The next 20 years present an opportunity, or as Gutierrez says, an absolute imperative, to reconsider where we need to reinvest for a better future. And then they go on to say, for example, that $21 trillion, of that total, $16 trillion went to the military, including at least $7.2 trillion for contracts. Another $3 trillion went to veterans programs, $949 billion went to Homeland Security, and $732 billion went into federal law enforcement. For far less than it's spent on militarization since 9-11, the U.S. could reinvest to meet critical challenges that have been neglected for the last 20 years. $4.5 trillion could fully decarbonize the U.S. electric grid. 2.3 trillion could create 5 million jobs at $15 per hour with benefits and cost of living adjustments for 10 years. 1.7 trillion could erase student debt. 449 billion could continue the extended child tax credit for another 10 years. 200 billion could guarantee free preschool for every 3 and 4 year old for 10 years and raise teacher pay. $25 billion could provide COVID vaccines for the population of low-income countries. In other words, the point is clear. We have to reinvest. We have to reprioritize if we want to survive because the threats well, grow greater and greater. Well, Maureen, our time is nearly up. So give the uh, info again to, for this coming Saturday. Um, yes. Where can people uh, plug into. Okay, so I would urge your listeners to go to katiripeaceconference.org, K-A-T-E-R-I-P-E-A-C-E-C-O-N-F-E-R-E-N-C-E.org, one word, um, for a description. Uh, the conference will be on Zoom from uh, 9 to 2. They can register. They will need to register, and we are so eager to have as many people join into the conversation. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I hope that they do, and, and the other speakers will talk about, in many cases, solutions. Um, some of our people are engaged in uh, – some of our speakers are engaged in, in working towards ways to confront climate change, um, ways to Good. create – diplomatic connection rather than conflict, um, ways to confront the militarization that, that really threatens us all. Maureen, you know, I commend you for all of the work that you've done over the years. And um, i got to say that, you know, after the conference, we could have another discussion on the conference. So you have been listening to Maureen Armand uh, talking about the Katiri Peace Conference 
I'm Cynthia Pooler. This is Focus on Albany. If you like this show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Thanks, Maureen. Thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Thank you, Cynthia, for providing this opportunity for so many people.